Welcome to the Strategy Mom Podcast. Tune in for everything you need to know to stay in the know regarding the automotive industry. Here's your host, Jason Harris. Hey, 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 what's going on, Podcast Nation? It is Jason Harris here, and thank you for joining me on another episode of Strategy Mob. Today, I have the one, the only, the oh-so-famous Mr. Justin Sorrell in the house. Justin, thank you so much for taking the time to jam with me today. I'm so excited to uh, just hang with you, man, and just kind of chat about anything and everything to do with automotive. I'm excited, too. Thanks for having me. Very excited. Hey, Justin, for everybody out there who don't know who you are and kind of how you got started in the industry, I thought it would be cool if we kicked off today's podcast with a little origin story. So, so Justin, I'm super curious. What is the origin story that is, Justin? Yeah, so uh, I'll tell you. I'll try to keep it brief. You know, I don't, I don't, uh, don't want to bore anybody, but I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, born and raised, and um, I got into the car business. Uh, in 2004 out of the army. I was on active duty in the army and um, I, I didn't go to college and I've always prided myself on that, that, that I, uh, I made a good living and have provided my, for my family very well in the automotive industry without having a college degree. I always like, I always wore that as like a badge of honor, I guess, you know, um, but spent 16 years in the industry um, mainly sell I sold cars for years and then uh, progressed to management sales manager sales manager used car manager general sales manager general manager um, and in December I I got out of the business um, and I, I went to work with my friend Derek who who uh, founded think ad group and for the last year I've been I've been a, a car guy trying to market to people that are like me. So, you know, we say that a lot, like we're not, we're not marketing guys in the car business. We're car guys in the marketing business. So I can relate to what general managers, what managers go through, what it's like. Um, you know, I spent, I spent 10 years on the desk, ride the desk, desk in deals for a, a high volume dealership. And it just, you know, I can, I can, we could do a whole podcast on desking be, me personally, because I feel like it's such an art form and I, uh, I was known for being one of the best around and I do believe I'm the best desk manager ever in the history of the world. Right. Oh, you know what? I think there we go. I'm into this. Let's do this because man, I got all kinds of thoughts and opinions on desking. And you know, Justin, I had a real similar kind of, you know, kind of growing up in the industry as well. Right. I mean, I started off the operation side. I pretty much worked every single part of the business you possibly can from sales to service to BDC to internet operations to floor management to GM to GSM, you know, and then eventually one day actually owned my own dealership, had a blast being a dealer principal, you know, uh, but, you know, being a young dealer principal, I had three kids, something had to give. So ultimately ended up selling the dealerships myself and started the agency. And like you, I've had so much fun helping other dealerships kind of create those marketing strategies, but coming from like an operational experience and understanding of what the hell they actually have to go to. So I am so glad that you brought up desking deals because yeah. like it seems to be kind of a hot subject. Like I got a, I had a dealership I'm consulting with right now and they sent me over a bunch of profit and statements and i'm just going there's something changing here like i mean and, and and sure enough i knew it without you know just looking at the numbers but i'm sure you could see the exact same thing it was just that there was a shift there was a shift in management there's a shift in the way that they were desking deals and they were doing it consistently one way and then they shifted you can literally see in the profit and loss statement where that shift was but i like to kind of get your thought and opinion on this yeah. because i think there's so many different variations of before i interject my own you know i'm yeah. kind of curious from you now yeah. we're, look dude we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic i don't want to say we're at the end of it because we just thought we had a chance talking off camera you know we're right. definitely in the middle of it let's just say that right a lot right, of things right. have changed laid out for me what do you think that desking process looks like you know for you and when we can kind of bounce my ideas off each other so you know what i've thought a lot about if i was if i obviously haven't desked through what's going on right now. And I know it's changed. I've heard grosses are higher. You know, you, you hear that, right? You hear that a lot that the, the gross profits higher because of demand, because of 
whatever. Maybe they don't want to go through the the customer in, inventory to levels, depending on which dealership you talk to. They don't want to make an appointment at two different places because it's already going to take a whole day. They just want to get it over with. Um, you know, I can't speak to that, but what I can speak to is that I really do believe it's an art form. And I, in my mind's eye, at least I had it mastered. I mean, I was, I was, you know, I was the cat's meow when it came to the desk and you know, it was, it was about asking my sale, asking the salesman, no matter their level, you got to treat it's It's a lot like being a quarterback or a coach, you know, I trained more and I trained every day. I had meetings every day that I trained, but I trained more right there at that desk when I was loading that salesman's lip or talking to him about, uh, you know, what to say, if they say this, say that, if they object to this, this is what you want to say. I did so much training right there at the desk that, um, that's, that's what I felt like I did all day was I was just coaching, coaching, coaching. But, um, from the way I structured that deal, um, by, by the way, the, the salesman answered my questions, um, you know, and sometimes, sometimes my first pencil was a $12,000 deal. And sometimes my first pencil was a $2,000 loss. And, that's where I felt like the art form came from. You know, I, I, by the questions I asked, by what happened, by what that floor manager, cause I had floor managers that would go in and they'd give me information. And, um, that's, I don't know. I, I, I guess I could go on about that for a while, but no, you're hundred percent right though. Like, I mean, I think desking a deal had more to do with who I was desking for. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily the car I was desking for. You know what I mean? Oh, I, I've, I, you know, I, I'm working with a lot of new managers right now, and I'm finding like what they're desking is they're desking the car. Do you, it, that make sense yeah, to you? Yeah, yeah, right? Absolutely. Like they desk the car. You know, like there's something up with the car, and it's been in inventory for such a long period of time, and da 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 yeah, da da. Yeah. da. It, it kind of has this like pre-deceived like you know voodoo about it so i'm gonna desk it a certain way right and i always thought that was kind of a messed up way to do it is is desking is. the deal based on the car and i always felt like you had to desk the deal based on the customer and, and 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 for me to do that like i had to really know that customer so it was you know and of course i had to rely on my team you know be yep. able to collect yep. that information so i think that's actually yep. a good question and I, I feel i get the feeling that you're the same like you kind of desk the same way you desk the customer not the deal um Absolutely. so so what kind of information would you require your salespeople? um or maybe even right now what kind of information would you want because i mean look between yeah, me i mean so, but look since since me and you've been in the business desking deals shit's changed yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, so, so, so when i desk deals the questions i i always ask them you know, where are they from? You know, and it would it'd be on the worksheet, but where, you know, there's so many things. There's, there's this, this is a crazy, this is a crazy analogy. And I used to train this analogy. Okay. And you can edit this out if it sucks. Okay. But here's what I did. Are you familiar with counting cards at blackjack? Oh yeah. I was never good at it, but I understand it. <laughs> Right. You understand the principle, right? So a face card comes out. It's a plus value. Uh, a, two to not, a two to eight comes out. It's a, a minus value. And then there's the neutral cards in between. So as the cards are shown, all the cards are shown, you're running this count in your head, plus one, minus one, plus one, plus two, plus three, and you're counting, right? So I taught my sales staff. I trained on this. Okay. In blackjack, when they would increase their bets when they were counting the cards, they'd increase their bets as that debt got hot, okay? So that's how I would judge my swing when I came out of the gate with my first pencil, okay? So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. And again, you can edit this out, okay? <laughs> I'll give you an example. So you have uh, a title in hand. That's plus one, right? plus one, right? Um, how about this one? They only care about payment. There you go, you can add another plus right there. Plus one, right? But then they say, they've been to four Chrysler dealerships before they came to mine. Minus one, right? You, you following me? So when you get this deck stacked in your favor, and this is so unethical and so wrong on so many levels. And it's part of the reason, it's part of the reason why I don't want to do that anymore. But when you get that deck stacked against them is when you take the swing for gross. And they only care about payment. They 
uh, have a paid off trade. They uh, want to be under $600 a month and they're looking at a 2010 Corolla. What are you going to do to that? What are you going to do to that customer? You're going to annihilate them. Yeah, unfortunately, probably that's true. Uh, yeah, and and that, but but that that's that's where the you know the ethics part comes in. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. Like like you you, you 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 can do this ethically, you know. You can you can, you yep. can desk yeah. a deal ethically. Or you can desk a deal not ethically, and that does that. that, that I, I've so seen it both ways. There is, and there's so many deals, and I that I you know, profits, profit. I did what I did for my family and I would probably do it again, but I don't feel right about it. I'll never forget. This is, this is a story that goes back to me selling cars. The first month I sold cars, the first month I sold cars, it was probably my second or third deal. This lady came in, I'll never forget her. And she said, she said, uh, listen, I'm re she ran a pizza hut. Okay. And she retired she worked for Pizza Hut for 30 years, from the 70s up through, you know, the early 2000s. She ran this Pizza Hut. She came in. She said, I'm on a fixed income. She was driving a Cam – I was working at a Toyota store. She was driving a Camry at the time. And she said, I need something less expensive. I want to go down to the Corolla now because I'm going to a fixed, fixed income. And I sold her a used Corolla – for more than a new one cost. And I, yeah, I hear you on that one. I'm brand new in the business. And I just was like, man, I, you know, I, I, and I remember thinking right then and there, it was like, what, you know, what should I do? And I went home and, and talked about it. And I, I didn't feel good about, it. I've never felt good about it, you know, cause it wasn't the right thing to do, you know, but you know, you know, the first dealership I worked at, um, see, I've had the opportunity, and you have the opportunity to work a lot of different dealerships as well. The first the first dealership I worked at had a culture. In fact, actually, all the dealerships, I was very fortunate that all the dealerships I worked at had a very defined culture. But the first one I worked at had a culture around one thing and one thing only, and that was making money. And that's just what it was. Look, I mean, look, agree or disagree, I don't give a crap. Bottom line is there was a clearly defined culture in this in this business or in this yep. dealership that I worked at, and that was around money. Look, the sales manager walked around with a roll of cash. The GM walked around with a roll of cash. Yep. The salespeople were walking around with a roll of cash, and they were constantly screwing around with each other, betting each other this amount, this that. Look, it was it was all it was all basic money. So I actually had a front row education of what not to do. Um, but 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 no different than you, Justin. Man, I had a few deals that just made me feel dirty at the oh man yeah, they just dirty. made me feel dirty at the end of the day until until i got to another dealership it was my second dealership i worked at that had a culture around giving a shit about the customer and boy did i have to relearn a lot of things so it's like i went from like learning a whole lot of what not to do then learning a whole lot what to do and it was yep. the best thing i ever could have done with me so you know i was you know i remember i was, I was just sitting in a gm's office the other day and he's like running through these like list of applications it's like oh well this person's like hopping back and forth between dealerships and i'm like like you know what that's not necessarily a bad thing find out why they were hopping i hopped back and forth between dealerships but i learned a shitload in between right so I learned I learned super fast that um, instead of swinging for the fences, desking a deal, I had to stop swinging for the fences. So I went from dealership, my first dealership, dealership A, to dealership B, who now then cared more about the customer than the profitability. Right. right. And 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 I had to be taught how to play a good game of baseball. And and you know as Justin works, you you play a good game of baseball, you don't swing for the fences every single time. Like we can't be the Babe Ruth of this industry, even though I think most salespeople want to be the Babe They want to set it out there and go, I'm going right out there, buddy, I'm knocking this thing out of the park. And I had to do that. I had to I had to learn how to line up all right, the person I was batting up against, similar to what you were talking about earlier. And and I had to totally accept the fact that I was gonna get an on base deal, maybe a second possibly a third but very seldom would I ever hit a home run but I had to play the game I had to play the game because I had to look at the overall thing not just a singular transaction I think that was the fundamental thing that shifted me into it but hey man we've been all in that place where we've done those deals that we weren't overly happy with <laughs> absolutely when when, when when did was that shift for you I'm actually kind of curious when did you realize that you had to play the long game versus the short game it was a lot like what you had mentioned the all these sales managers with all this money and uh it, it was, it was weird. I was very young. I was, I was fresh out of the army and 
Um, the whole time I was in the army, I never worried about money, I guess, because I had, you know, I had a roof over my head. I had a steady paycheck and the car business was that first reality where I wanted, I knew that there was something inside of me that, that there was drive and I wanted to produce, I wanted to perform, but, um, it was the first time I really realized that I, I, you know, the, the world was out there for the taking and, but what's changed so much is I remember when I first became a manager and I was such a, now I'm getting to be old, but I was, I was so young. I was one of the youngest managers, you know, around my area and I was whatever, still in my, my late twenties. And, um, a lot of the sales team was older than me. The finance managers were older than me. And it was, what was weird is for me, it's where that old school mentality was, was being handed, handed over. And what's crazy now is I remember, and I'm sure you do. I remember when five, six, eight years ago, when we were all talking smack on millennials, myself included, like I had this great work ethic. These millennials are the worst. And it's, it's so different because those millennials are brilliant and they're the ones that are starting to run the dealerships and I've seen that change so I see that that old school guy who taught you and me right and and then we're here in the middle and then you have the millennials that are now starting to take over and it's it's pretty cool to see and uh it, it's really cool to see I call it a kind of the transition from the superstar kind of mentality you know like, yeah. like, like when we were, when we were managing our teams, okay. And even prior to it, but even more so when we were managing our teams, right. We had our superstars. You might yeah. remember a couple of the names that worked for you, your superstars, yeah. right. You know, you, you know who I'm talking about. They were the pump. They were the people you knew that you didn't have to worry about. Like, yeah, you, you know, they just, oh man, they, they brought in the gross, they brought in the deals. All right. They were yep. superstars. You know, they were, they were good for their 20 to 30 cars a month. Every single time I didn't have to, I didn't have to babysit them. I didn't have to do any of that. And, and then there were the people in the middle and they were the ones that I was kind of fighting. And then you had the people at the bottom, right? There was kind of, there was three kind of different levels of salespeople that we had in our team, right? That's changed, you yeah. know, and, and, but I think it's changed for the good, you know, uh, a, I don't think there's a whole hell of a lot of superstars out there anymore. You know, that's either they retired, they've sold their way through all of their clients and they're out putting around and doing dealer trades, um, <laughs> you know, um, but but I'm also looking at, you know, you said millennials I'm looking into this new audience that's coming in here. They're not interested in being a superstar. No, nope. they, they don't want to be the 20 to 30 car person, right? Yeah, Sorry, go ahead. You had some. This is the best story I have about millennials. And this is where this is when. I just, I still, it boggles my mind. So I have a millennial, I have a millennial working for me and we had demos at my, at my store. And, um, I, he was, he was one of my top performing guys. Okay. And my top performers, just like you said, the 30 car guys, no more. Um, the four car guy never lasts, but you all, you have a bunch of these, you have a bunch of these 12, 13, 14 car guys. And he's one of these Better guys, you know, maybe he's doing 15, 16 cars a month. Point of the story is we put him in a, a Cherokee demo, okay? And uh, we start him out in like a Cherokee uh, and he's, he's driving around in it. So he starts doing really well. And I said, and this is so different because you and me, I'm assuming you're like me. I want to drive the biggest, baddest, nicest thing po humanly possible. You give me the sickest thing the whatever the nicest thing is, that's what I want. Millennials, no way. So this kid, I said to him, hey, you're doing so good. Why don't you, why don't you take a Grand Cherokee? You can have a Grand Cherokee Limited. Why don't you drive a nice truck, a nice Ram? The kid's like, no, I like my Cherokee. I'll just keep driving Cherokees. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And he's like, it's fuel efficient. It's easy to park. But that's that's totally the difference. Is, is am I right or am I? That's what they want. That's what they want. They no, no. Want. Look, look, hundred percent. They're they're looking for more. Look, they want to connect more than they actually want. Look, look. I hate to say they it, want, but you they know, want a tiny house, a Cherokee, and, and 
have internet, great yeah. Wi-Fi. You know, I mean, I, I, I remember when I was a salesperson and you're from that same generation where you're a salesperson, the commission slips come in, you know, you got your pink slips. I remember getting pink slips. Yeah. You get pink yeah, slips? Yeah. Okay, I got pink slips too. Yeah, I know. You know, and we literally sit there and, get, and, and say, okay, you guys all ready? And at lunch, we throw down each other's pink slips and see yeah. see which one got the most of them, right? And you'd haze the shit out of each other for it, right? And that's just, that's just the way, to, that don't happen anymore. No. They just don't. They just don't straight up care about. It. And I actually don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I have actually have no beef with it whatsoever, you know, yeah. because it's it's just a different type of player. And I just feel like even in sports, I think sports is running into the same thing. They're running into a different type of player in our industry, in the automotive industry, we're running into a different type of player. All right, it's not a player that uh, gets super excited about you know beating the pants out of the salesperson next to them. Right? They want to yeah. feel connected. They want to feel a part of the team, all right? Team is more important now today than I think it ever has been before. And I'm curious to see when you saw that shift between that superstar culture to a team culture. I, I would say four or five years ago is when I really saw it, saw it switch that way. I mean, um, you know, and I can honestly say that four or five years ago is when I realized I really relinquished that fighting the millennial generation. And I really started to embrace it. And we're like, wait a second, these kids are smart. Um, they, they show up to work most times, <laughs> you know, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, but I, I, you know, I really started to realize this is the future. These are the people that are going to be running the country, um, before we know it. And, uh, so I, I really, I feel a lot differently now than I did then. Look, I think we all have had to change, right? Like we've, we've all had to change a little differently there, but you know, but it actually kind of excites me a little bit, you know, I mean, yeah. towards, towards the tail end of, you know, uh, me owning a dealership, you know, that was where it was at, you know, I like to give you, I, I want to get your thought on this because, you know, I mean, this was, so this would have been a little over five years ago. All right. I got criticized criticized and i mean hardcore especially within the dealership area where i was in for offering my staff all right a four-day work week that included salary and a bonus structure not commission a bonus structure so look i paid salary and i had some seriously documented well expectations like some hardcore expectations like here you're gonna get a salary and here's what i expect for you to even get that salary right and that is just so we can meet the right. customer's expectations if we're going to exceed the customer's expectations i'm going to bonus you on those ex exceeding the customer expectations here's how i do it and then and top it off i'm going to ask you to work four day 12 hour shifts and then i'm going to take you and i want you to take three days off i got ripped apart all right, in my area for offering that. And I'm curious, and this was, like I said, five or six, now I actually almost find it the norm. I actually see a lot of dealerships do this, but I'm curious to see, see when, when, what, what are your thoughts? Salary, commission, so, I wanna hear it. So I have, I have mixed feelings, I do. So I, it's, it's real, it's very hard for me coming from where I came from to motivate a salesman based, I like to motivate a salesman based upon gross and volume and a combination of the two, okay? But these days, okay, what's happening is with as competitive as a market it's, it's becoming, with as aggressive as pricing structures are across the country in big cities, it's, it's so difficult to pay a salesman on gross profit when they have no control over what that gross profit is. Now they have you can train them, you can get them to do a better uh, walk around, a better demo, and you can teach them to build value, et cetera. But it's, it's so hard because I want to pay them on, on gross profit, but there, you know, there was a dealership that I know of personally that they're paid on gross profit and they're, the salesmen are selling 15, 18, 20 cars and they're starving to death. And it's, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So um, I'm on the fence, you know, I have, I have mixed feelings about it. Um, I've worked at dealerships where there's a lot of salary in place for the sales salesman. And um, as a desk manager who spent so many years desking, 
I wanted them paid on that gross because I could see the difference in that in those grosses when they were paid on the gross, you know. Well, I think that's a good point. I mean, I mean, Justin, I mean, between me and you, a lot has changed since desking deals. I mean, I, I, I actually struggle with the fact just in the last seven or eight years, how much control does a salesperson, salesperson, let alone a sales manager actually have in the profitability of a damn car? It's tough. I mean, mar- margins. Tough yeah, I mean, margins have gotten so stupid tight over the years. It's just to the point yeah. where it's like, you know, you have control this little tiny bit. <laughs> you know, what's like- happened is those front end grosses have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, and the back end grosses have gone up and up and up and up and up because the dealers are forced to make that money in finance. Because the the uh, and then there's all that mess of they're overcharging in finance, they're overcharging for the warranties, they're holding the points they shouldn't be holding. It's it's very difficult to find that balance where you treat customers right, you make a decent fair profit, and it's tough, very tough. And that pay plan is directly correlated to that that gross you know and i'm so with you on that and see that's what actually held me up look i was a person that started in the industry as commission i lived and died by my pink slips so you know the day i became a dealer principal and i decided to throw that out the window it didn't come you know it wasn't like an overnight decision it was like i'm like i had to have some serious discussion and conversation around this and 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 i knew Here's how it was for me. And I'm not nice saying that I'm just, this is for me. You know, this is how it was for me. All right. My goal and objective at the end of the day was for that customer to have the same experience, no matter if they were coming to buy a top of the line Mitsubishi Outlander. You know, I had a Mitsubishi store or um, an entry level Mitsubishi Mirage, which I was lucky if I made 400 bucks on the stupid thing, you know, it's like, but, but it didn't matter. It did not matter the profitability. I didn't want, I I just didn't want the profitability to ever affect that customer experience. So for me, I went drastic and I threw the whole thing, the whole thing out the window and said, look, you know, gross profit is never going to be a part of our, our salary or part of our bonuses or part of our commissions. And I started, and I started creating bonuses around people's efforts, not necessarily the results. And, um, you know, I'm not gonna lie, Justin, I, I, I attracted a significantly young, you know, young people. I mean, I had a lot of, you know, older sales guys working for me. They dipped. I'm out of here. I'm going to go work yeah. for another dealership. Okay, that's fine. And I, but I did attract a significantly younger team, you know, because I think of the pay plan and the structure I put to place. But the thing I'd never expected was how close these people were going to become as family and team members. I mean, holy yeah. crap. Yeah. You know, I, I just, I mean, even today, I'm still dumbfounded. I mean, just the, just the sheer of just wanting to help each other and take care of each other. It's just, I, I just, I, yeah. I've only seen it in a handful of other dealerships all over the place. So here's my big question. I get to ask you, all right, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'll put you to it, dude. All, all right. right. Here's your quote. Okay. Sell oh, salary or commission. Why or why not? Ah. <laughs> <sighs> I got to say, I got to say commission, but I am a big proponent of paying a salesperson on front end and back end profit. So uh, the the last dealership I was the general manager of, I, I made that change when I got there because I knew, I know just like I said, how that front end gross is going down, the back end gross is going up. Um, it's important to get them to buy in and it's important to get them to want to sell those warranties. And I saw the shift from, uh, you know, the salesman selling warranties before it ever got back to the finance office and all that stuff because they knew they were paid on it. Um, so I'm going to say commission, I'm going to say commission. I guess I'm still cool. Man, that's, that's totally cool. That's, it's all good. And I don't think there's necessarily a wrong or right one. I think yeah. it's just, you know, it, it's whatever one you decide to go. If you can, can maintain, all right, the customer experience at the center of that, all right, I, I, just find, I just find too often it's easy to default to commission, all right, because it operationally takes care of certain things. 
So instead Absolutely. of me instead of me training and coaching on the experience, it almost kind of automatically that my, my my pay structure will ensure that they do what they need to do and they'll say what they need to say and they'll fill out the paperwork they need to say then they need to yeah. fill out and they'll bring me the documentation they need to because because yeah, it, it, you know what I mean so like absolutely. I I I'm, I'm totally open either way I just you know so here I'm gonna throw another curveball at you because here is a new model. All right, that I've only just started recently seeing, and it's because of COVID. It's because of COVID, a brand new okay. model. I'm gonna throw it at you, and I want to get your thoughts and opinions on it. Okay, I all right. I, I have a, I have uh, an owner. He owns about three or four rooftops. They're smaller dealerships. They're not metropolitan dealerships, so they're kind of out country. Let's call them country dealerships, right? You know, uh, dealership wise, the retail units they, they they probably only retail about six six hundred to maybe seven hundred units a year. Okay. okay, they got you know maybe four or five people working the floor. So they, these are these are small, tight, 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 tight dealerships. Yeah. All right, because of what's been going on with COVID and kind of this uncertainty of efforts, kind of back and forth, this is what they decided to do. They decided to take the sales person's position and role and combine it with the service advisor. So mm. the salesperson, the service advisor are now one. And mm. the that, that that individual is being bonused and commissioned or paid on both their sales efforts and their service efforts. Initial thoughts. I'm curious what you think. I mean, the first thing I think is that a service writer, when you walk into a dealership, who is who's who are you more likely to see not busy, a service writer or a sales associate? Salesman, right? So those service writers. Now, I guess if it's, I mean, I would just, I would just think it would be almost impossible to give the service customer the experience they deserve if you have to take an hour away or an hour and a half away to to handle a, a sales process. So, not to mention the sales customer is not going to be get the experience he deserves when he's spending 40 grand on a car. Very, very, very different. I just see, you know, at the dealerships I've worked at, service writers. So, I, sorry, I forgot to mention one thing. They're all working as a team. So, not as an individual, uh, they're all working as a team. I forgot to throw that one in there. So, so service writer running over, taking it up, and then, okay, I so, see. So, I so, see. so the, the gross profit that's being generated from the service side Ooh, okay, and the okay. gross profit that's being generated from the sales side is being collectively combined as a team. They're pulling tips. Exactly. I'm, I, look, I, I, I'm not saying this is a right or wrong one. I'm just curious to see what your thoughts are. Well, now that's different. Okay, so you're going to have um, – so there's two, there's two sides of it. On one hand, you're going to say, okay, well – they're going to make sure that everybody gets the good experience because, but then you're going to have that, you're going to have those, those dirt balls who want to just, they can rely on somebody else taking care of a customer. I don't have to take care of a customer. I'm going to get paid anyway. Um, very interesting though. I'll tell you that it's interesting. Definitely something I would need to wrap my head around, but um I think they're again just like just like the the pay structure we were talking about pros and cons right you gotta you gotta look I'm with you on that and um, I don't know about you Justin but when I grew up I was a Boy Scout and uh, you know it was like every okay you were too <laughs> I was only for a couple years so okay. I was a wee, a wee below oh you were okay yeah you were really early on dude I made yes, it I made uh, it okay. I made it to Eagle um, so. <laughs> Nope. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was I was one of those really geeky, hardcore high school boy scouts. Oh yeah, yeah. high school. Boy. My <laughs> friend in high school was an Eagle Scout, and I made fun. I tortured him about it. <laughs> but but you but, know what though? It, you know what taught me is always being prepared, right? I mean, it's the whole core of everything is to be prepared for that unknown. So here's kind of lays you know kind of just puts me into my next question then for you. Kind of lays me off for yeah. that. Um, is you know. Your thoughts and opinions, all right, from, you know, how a dealership should be prepared, all right, for the possibility of a second closure. And we're going to break this down both into operations and marketing. So let's start with operations and then we'll move over to marketing. All right. I'm, look, regardless if it happens or not, we have to have the conversation, you know? Sure. 
Absolutely. So, so, so kind of what would you say would be the top three or four, maybe five things that you would recommend for a dealership to seriously start having conversations around? All right. Yeah. So that they're prepared for this possible second closure. We'll start with operations yeah. then we'll go to marketing. All right. So we'll start with operations, Justin. So operationally, there were some, there were some definite, definite flaws out there the first go around. And I can tell you, in my opinion, the first flaw that I saw operationally from dealerships that, that they really, they really botched was personnel. And it was because, you know, a lot of reasons. It was, it was a lot of reasons. What do they do with, and so many dealerships have lost great employees, um, not because they had to be laid off, which is understandable, but it was the way that it went down. Just, I don't know. So, so you got to be talking, okay, let's, let's have a plan of this. If this happens again, what are we going to do with personnel? Because that without personnel, we don't have a dealership. And I feel like, I feel like dealers just thought too many people were expendable. Um, that and it, it, it just wasn't handled the right way. Um, second of all, inventory, inventory. So we've seen what's happened to the used car market. We've seen what's happened to the new car market. We've seen the new car uh, shortages all across uh, the U.S., I'm sure Canada as well, um, which I have a question for you, by the way. Shoot, what you got? Why in Canada they say Chrysler? <laughs> Dude, we, it's the same way we also say Nissan or Do you say Nissan. Nissan? Nissan or Nissan, or how about they, how about they, Mazda? Mazda. Mazda. They, 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 I've heard a lot of Chrysler. What is that? I, That's dude, I, I have no idea. That's the screwy part of being who I am. It's because I am an American. You know, right. whenever I'm up here, Where are you from originally uh, Boise, Idaho. Um, but I grew up all over the Western part of the United States. Actually, if I had to call a home home, I'd say Albuquerque, New Mexico, the Southwest. Um, I grew up on green chili and red chili burritos, man. Um, (laughs) but, 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 but seriously though, I like, I, 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 when I'm in the States, I get introduced as the Canadian. When I'm here in Canada, I get introduced as the American. I have no freaking clue what I am. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to stop you there. Go ahead though. But like, sorry, back to uh, (laughs) operationally. So first personnel, handle that personnel. Like if you got to lay them off, okay, but be communicate with them, keep them updated, tell them they're valuable to you. Tell them you don't have another choice. Communicate with yeah, them. Yeah. Communication it, was a big one. That was a huge one. Just say, Hey, Joe, Joan, you're, you're so important to us. I can't wait to be able to call you back. Just communicate, take care of them. Even if they're not coming to work every day, uh, as best you can as best you can. Um, inventory, prepare for inventory, prepare, prepare. And what can you do? Everybody's in the same boat, I guess, you know? So what, what would I do is I'd sit with my management team and say, what are we going to do? What are we going to do if the plant shuts down for another six months? What's our plan? What's our strategy? Um, exactly. Like, like, how do you, how do you, how do you even respond to that? Right. I mean, look, there might not be a way, but at least just tackling it. <laughs> have, have the bloody conversation. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, look, look, the first closure happened. Okay. And we all got hit just the same way. We all got hit. It was, it was literally a sucker punch right across the face. We all took it. All right. We all dealt with it in different ways. Some people grinned and asked for another. Others stuck their head in the sand and went la, 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 until the yeah, damn yeah. thing was over. Right. right. So, <laughs> you know, it's everyone handled it differently. And I, I'm not going to say there was a wrong or right way to handle it. Okay. Yeah. But now we're, now if we're staring down the barrel of a second one, shit, you know better. Right. Yeah. You know, like you should know better moving into this. Yeah. Right, the conversation needs to be had at the dealership right now. What if this was to happen again? What if yeah. that was to happen? All right. Are we prepared for this? And that's, and that's where I, that's where my blood starts to boil a little bit. And my four letter words start to come out really quick, you know, because it's just, I get super upset. Cause I, I, I gotta be honest with you, Justin, like I, my conversation with a lot of dealerships, especially coming off of August was this false sense of success. Yeah. Like I had a lot of dealerships out there, man, that felt they, they knocked it out of the freaking part. Like, yeah. 
I sold cars. And I'm like, well, no shit, Sherlock. All right. You, you've been closed for four or five months, you know, and, and you sold some cars. You had some inventory, right? But, you know, now they're filling it in September. They're they're, they're like, oh, oh, no, uh, maybe I'm not as big and powerful as I thought, you know, but it's just like, it's, it's just, I get upset when we're not having, like, I feel, I call it full belly syndrome. I don't know if you ever heard me use this term before. I love this, this term. You know, you, you know, I remember sales, as a salesperson, hell, this even happened to me from times, right? It's like, I'd come off a really good month and, oh, I was full. Mm. I made that ten, twelve thousand dollar check. Oh, that was good. And you kind of go into the next month, maybe not pushing as hard or working as hard. And I hate to say it right now, Justin, but I'm a, my fear is that there's a lot of full belly syndrome out there. So the conversations around being prepared is not happening. And frankly, it's pissing me the fuck off. <laughs> I, I agree with you a hundred percent. And the, the next thing that I would say in that line of operationally, uh, and this is, this is, you know, my shameless plug for my company is, did, did their customers know? Did their customers know? And did they know when they were open? Did they know what their new service hours were? Did they know that sales was by appointment only? No. Uh, in most cases, they didn't. Okay, what, uh, uh, the customer stumbles on their website and sees that, but... Um, you know, and that's what Think Ad Group does is we specialize not in bringing in new leads. We handle the leads that you've already already had, you've already dealt with. Your owner base, your sales owner base, your service owner base, your parts database, and and your unsold follow-up. And that's what we do. We, we um, take all that low-lying fruit that's in there and, and we, A, can get them a message, but we we can um, keep them updated what's going on, but we can also get deals from that. From Dude, I'm so glad you brought that up. And by the way, I love your shameless plug. Go see, <laughs> go, go. <laughs> Go see, go see Justin, my buddy over at Think. If you're in the states, and if you're in Canada, you better see me. Um, <laughs> just, just yeah. messing with you. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, but but no, seriously though, like going into the marketing space, like I think there were some lessons learned from the operations. I think that's a very valuable lesson learned from the marketing side. I'm sure there's probably two or three others. What other lessons do you think that, you know, we need to start having conversations around right this moment so that we are prepared in case we run into a second closure from a marketing perspective? Yeah. So if, if there's a second closure, you're going to run into those new car inventory issues. So if you're a dealer of any real size, any small to medium to large, um, I would, I would start hedging my bets on the used car market. Um, now it could get stale and it could sit there and I understand that, but, uh, I would be marketing to my database, trying to get, trying to get those trades. You're going to buy them, right? You're not going to pay too much for them. Um, because you're, you're, you're trading them, you know, you're, or buying them. Um, so I would really focus on, on, um, trying to get some inventory set up for when I, when I open back up again, and I can definitely help you there. I'm sure you can too, but, um, what else? No, I think, I think inventory is a big one, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I absolutely. mean, it's just, again, it's all about just being prepared. Plus I also think, I mean, I'm gonna throw another one at you and I'm sure you probably agree with me on this one too, is, is from a marketing perspective, don't stop. That's like a yeah. kind of like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, here's the way I look at it. A good investor in a down market doesn't stop investing. Nope. Like they don't. In fact, actually, a smart investor continues to invest throughout a down market. Now they may shift in what they're investing into. Now I'm sure you guys probably saw something similar that we saw. But we saw during right during that that closure right where the dealerships that were still actively participating in their marketing efforts, we saw some of the lowest cost lead forms the lowest yeah. cost engagement rates, the lowest cost video views. I mean, look, I, I, I hate to say it, it is what it is, but it's the same thing investing, all right? Mm -hmm. There were a lot of people that got scared shitless and ran for the hills and backed out, and then yep. the people that were continuing to put back into the system reaped hugely with low cost, high value type engagement, attention, you know, and, and, and leads. So it's like, I just, 
I don't want to see anybody thinking that, oh no, we closed, so I'm going to shut everything down again. It's like, you know, it's like, I think from a marketing perspective, and this kind of ties into both marketing and operations, and I would like to get your thoughts on this too, is that we got to get really freaking serious about a real true internet operations department within our dealership. And I know there are some out there that already exist, and I applaud you for already having it. I ran one almost... 13 years ago, so mind-boggling today that there's still a bunch of dealerships that don't have this department. Now, it's not a BDC, people. Let me make this really perfectly clear. It's not a BDC. Internet operations and BDC are entirely different. Business development actually is in the name. They're there to develop you new business. Your internet operations department is actually there to handle the people that have chosen to communicate you with you digitally versus over the phone or in person. And I'd like to kind of get your thoughts on that. Moving forward, how do you think we need to structure or train a more internet department knowing that that possibility of closure is going to force us to engage that way. Yeah, so when I think of this, I think of a, a um, and I won't mention any names, but a customer of mine that is, is a, a big name dealership here in Pennsylvania. And they are going to complete, um, they, they completely change the way they do business and they have no intention of going back. And, their whole, they, they said, wait a second. And, and this is unfortunate because you don't want to see anybody lose jobs, but they, they said, wait a second, I don't need as many employees. I can do appointment only sales. Uh, I can be more profitable. I can have uh, uh, build an internet team and anybody that wants to be on my sales team is going to be an internet team member. <laughs> but I mean, they totally change the way they do business and they're not changing back. And it, it is, and they, they get it. They definitely get it. And I know for sure if they, you know, if they face a second closing, they'll be fine. But um, the internet, you know, your those internet leads, you know, when I got out, we were trying to close, close those internet leads at 15%. That was kind of the, you know, that's the kind of na- this, average. And I've thought about that so much since as like, is that number 25% now? Because it probably should be because so many more people are shopping from home or, or, or should it be less? I don't know. What do you think? Sorry. You know, I'm actually seeing closing ratios increase across the board right now. Okay. Now let's say closing ratios increasing across the board between the dealerships that actually track this shit versus the ones that just kind of randomly throw a number at you. You ever been in those meetings? So, so what's your internet lead closing ratio? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm about or approximately, I'm like, you know what? Just don't even finish answering that fucking question. I'll move on to another one. Um, that, that still blows my mind. Like I got to admit between me and you, Justin, it still blows my mind that it's 2020 and somehow we're still not able to effectively measure every single at bat opportunity that our dealership has, but that's a whole nother podcast right there. That's a whole nother podcast. But, but with that said though, I have seen dude i have seen dealerships right now that are closing at 70 percent. i've seen internet closing you know internet lead closing ratios as high as 30 yep. percent and it's you know um the cool thing is the oh, dealerships know that it's not them it's just the way things are like i mean look traffic's down 25 percent across the board for uh, all 117 clients we have right um i mean literally on average it's 25 percent, 24.3 i think was what the number we actually came up with was and and but regardless right you know closing uh traffic's down closing ratios are up so that means the people that are coming into the door look at that dude it's a pandemic i don't know if i remember but it's a pandemic out there i think anybody that's actually walking through the door is actually pretty freaking serious about possibly purchasing and driving away that day with something and i think it's no different than an internet lead you know look if someone someone's submitting something they're pretty serious right now we're not getting a whole whack ton of uh you know inquiries that go totally dark our communication ratios so our lead to communication ratios have also almost doubled like this yeah. is just the world we're in right you're not, now. You're not handling those internet leads <laughs> perfectly. Then just just close up shop because it, that's, that's where it's all at. And I'll tell you right now, if you and I sent five web leads out to five different dealerships each right now, the 
they're not handling them the way they should be. That's well, I sure. can guarantee you that because we actually yeah. do the, we actually do a secret shopping on our existing database yeah. on a regular basis. And you know, if I smell a template, I lose my bloody mind. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I'm not I'm, I'm the first one to write out a four letter word uh, email yeah. to the general manager, going, yeah. "Do you know what I just got back?" Um, <laughs> but but it's not fair to the consumer. Like, I, I'm sorry, but I think anybody out there right now that's listening to this show right now and actively uses templates, just stop listening and just stop selling cars. Hang up. <laughs> like, like, really? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, so look, look, I'm all for standardizing communication efforts. I have no beef whatsoever in standardizing communication efforts, right? But if you are copying and pasting shit into a body of an email and that's how you respond to things, a customer smells that, they know that, and all you are telling that customer is, I just don't give enough about you as an individual to physically write something out that's unique to you as a person. Yep. You got company. I'll be in a little bit. <laughs> Gotta love those kids. It's dinner time, right? They're like, where's my food at? <laughs> and you know, you know what though? Perfect timing actually, because I know we're getting toward the tail end of our time today. But Justin, before I let you go though, for everybody out there that's watching and listening right now um, and would love to connect with you and kind of follow on with your guys' journey and join one of your guys' think tanks, which by the way, Thursdays, right? Every Thursday night. Yeah. Every Thursday night, get your yeah. drink on. Join yep. Justin and the entire team over at Think Tank for just a fun time. You guys have to check this out. But uh, Justin, uh, what is the best way to connect with you uh, if anybody would so like to do so? Us, yeah, we're pretty easy to find. You can find us at thinkadgroup.com. And that's also where the link is to our uh, Thursday night Zoom call. It's called Think Tank Thirsty Thursdays. Uh, we have a cocktail or coffee, whatever you're into. 9 p.m. Eastern every Thursday night. If you go to thinkadgroup.com, look for the swag page, and there's a link directly to drop you right into the think tank. Um, please connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, Derek Perez, the founder of our company, uh, connect with him. Evelyn Kelly, my, my uh, wife and uh, associate that works with us, we're real easy to find, so, so please check us out. If you want some of our swag, you got to come to the think tank. It's all free. We never charge anybody for it. Um, so... That's, I was told that there's some special edition orange something or another. I I know. I better. That, I might, gotta, that might be coming my way. I'm just. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah I'm your way. Yeah, hey, Justin, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to jam with me today. This has been an absolute blast. You have yourself an amazing day. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks for tuning in to the Strategy Mob podcast with your host, Jason Harris. Don't want to miss new content? Be sure to sign up to be a mobster at strategymob.com to stay in the know. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe. Happy podcasting. <laughs>